Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm excited to be here with you guys today. Um, it might be hard to believe, but I am not, in fact, Jason Williams. Um, if I haven't had the privilege to meet you yet, I am Jeff Rathbun. I have the honor of being the mission pastor here at Solid Rock. And I'm excited to, uh, to be with you here today and look at God's Word with you. Uh, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series, The People of God. And we're primarily going to be looking at 1 Samuel uh, today, looking at one of the main stories, one of the big first stories of King Saul in his reign over Israel. So we're primarily going to be in 1 Samuel 13. But before we actually get started talking about King Saul... First, we have to kind of figure out how we went from Moses receiving the law last week that Jason preached about, how we get from Moses to Israel having a king. And so, as Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, he's carrying the two tablets of the law that God himself had inscribed with his fingers in the stone. And he comes across a scene that Moses, he just couldn't believe what was going on. The people had already rejected God. They rejected His covenant before actually even seeing what the law was. And they decided to make for themselves an idol, a golden calf, and to bow down and worship it. And Moses, he's just struck by the scene that he comes across. And this scene, this, this story of the golden calf is really a good picture of what the people of Israel are going to be doing and what they're going to be going through uh, from that point, really going forward from there. The people, as they're going through the wilderness, as they're making their way towards the promised land, they're constantly rejecting God. They're constantly uh, lacking confidence and faith and trust in Him and what He has said He was going to do. And so the people are told, the generation that I brought out of Egypt, that generation isn't going to be able to enter into the promised land. That generation is denied entrance to Canaan. So they're destined to walk for 40 years, wandering around the desert. And during that time, Moses himself even gets caught up in, in sin and mistrust. And he is told that he's not even going to be able to enter into the promised land. And so the 40 years comes to a close. The, the last of that first generation out of Egypt has passed away. Moses and the people get close to the promised land. Moses is taken up on a mountain where he can just look off in the distance there and he can see the promised land. He can see Canaan, but he can't enter in. So Moses passes away and the leadership of Israel then goes to Moses' assistant, Joshua. Joshua is really tasked with taking the people across the Jordan River and helping them, leading them to conquer the land and to divide it up and then to settle it. And that's exactly what they do. They go in, they, they displace the, the nations that are currently inhabiting Canaan, and God uses Israel to act as judgment for those nations' sinfulness and to displace and disperse and conquer all of those people. So then the territories are allotted and lined out and the tribes of Israel are allowed to then settle in the land as they're supposed to, as they've been promised. And finally, that promise that God had made to Abraham back in Genesis, it's done. They can live at peace and everything's just hunky-dory and great from there on out, right? No, good, you guys have been reading. 
So then we enter into the time period of the Judges, and really, if you've read through the book of Judges, it's kind of almost like a Wild West novel, where you have these people that are just oppressing and being bullies and putting burdens and hardships on the, the Israelites, and they're the bad guys who run in, and they you know shoot up the saloon and then ride off, and it's just this time of oppression and darkness and then a hero comes in and he saves the day. He kicks the bad guys out of town and then he restores order, he restores peace, and everybody's happy and excited. And that, that's really what happens in Joshua, where, or in Judges rather, where the people are being oppressed because of their sin. God is call, causing the nations around them to rise up and oppress the Israelites, to put burdens on them, to oppress them heavily. And it's because of their sinfulness that this is happening. And finally, they will wake up to their sin and they'll say, God, save us. Please rescue us. We're repentant. We need, to, we need you to come and save us and to rescue us from our enemies. And so the God will then raise up a judge. And that judge will then go in as the hero. And then they will kick out the bad guys. They'll push back Israel's enemies. They will restore peace. They will restore the rule of God's law in the land. And then peace and prosperity do actually take place, but only for a time, because then the people become complacent. It becomes normal for them to have peace. And then that complacency then turns into sin. And this is a cycle that they go through throughout the book of Judges, on and on and on and on and on it goes, until we get to Samuel, who is the last judge over Israel, and so from the time of, of Joshua entering in to the land with the people to Samuel, we actually have a 300-year period of time where it's this cycle of sin and oppression and rescuing by God and his people. And so we get to Samuel, and I, told, I think I said we're going to be primarily in 1 Samuel 13, but right now we're going to start looking at in 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So at this point in the story, Samuel had been a judge and a prophet in Israel for quite a while. He'd been called as a prophet uh, early on in his life, and he was made a judge, and now he, he's gotten a little older. He's gotten a little older, and he finds that it's not as easy for him to do the work of judging and serving and ministering as it once had been. And so Samuel says, hey, 
Some of my sons are going to come with me. They're going to help me. They're going to assist me in judging and encouraging and shepherding the people. But the elders of Israel don't like this idea. And so they gather together and they come to Samuel and they start talking to him. And immediately what they actually do is they start insulting him. They say, you, you're Samuel, you're just too old to do this job anymore. Your sons, they're not cutting it. So not only are you too old, you probably didn't do a great job parenting them and leading them and training them in the ways of how to follow God because your sons don't walk and live as you do. So they say, Samuel, you you can't do this job anymore and we don't want your sons. So then the people ask for a king to rule over them. And not only do they ask for a king to rule over them, they ask for a king so that they can be like the other nations around them. They think to themselves, well, everybody else has a king, and they, they seem to be sort of respectable people, respectable nations. If we have a king, maybe we can be respectable too. And so Samuel is obviously displeased by this, because they're not only rejecting him as a judge, they're not only rejecting his sons and insulting him twice in the same sentence, so he talks to God and he says, God, I don't, I don't know why they're doing this to me. And God comforts Samuel and he says, look, they're not actually rejecting you. No, no, they're rejecting me as being king over them. And then, Samuel try, or then God tries to comfort Samuel again by saying, this isn't even a new thing for God's people. God's people have been rejecting God since the day he brought them out of Egypt. That's over 300 years. So, no, Samuel, this is not a new thing that they're doing, rejecting me. They're being more open about it. They're, they're outright rejecting me as their king, and they're calling for a man. But you can go ahead and give them what they want. Go ahead and give them the king that they think they desire. Only warn them exactly what this king is going to do and how he's going to reign over my people. So now we're going to be in 1 Samuel 13. This is really the first big story of Saul as he is king over Israel. We've had a couple chapters in between 8 and 13 where, Samuel, or where Saul has been uh, present. He's been around. There's been talk of him being king. But 1 Samuel 13 is where he really, it's his real big first debut on the stage as king over Israel. So starting in verse 1, of chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And then he had reigned for two years over Israel. So it had not been very long that Saul had been king. He's still very green, still very fresh, still very new in this office. In, in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, that's when Saul has actually been declared king. In chapter 10, he's anointed by Samuel and he's proclaimed king there as well. Now, the people, they're not quite sure if they're wanting him to be king over them or not. They're a little, little concerned, a little leery. So in chapter 11, we get to see Saul lead, uh, lead the people in a military victory against some of their enemies, and they're encouraged by this. They go, okay, maybe, maybe this king's not going to be that bad. Maybe he can do this job. And so they acclaim him and proclaim him king in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, we actually have Samuel's farewell speech. 
He's retiring as being a judge and being a prophet for the most part. And he's giving his, his retirement speech to the people. He's recounting the highs and the lows of his reign as a judge over them. At the very end of chapter 12, right before we get into this story of Saul, Samuel tells the people, you have been very wicked because you have rejected God as your king. And you've asked for a man to be king over you instead. So then when we get into chapter 13, we really see how this new king, exactly what he's going to do and what he's going to be up to. So let's continue on in verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So it's, like I said, it's pretty early on in Saul's reign. And because of his military victory uh, a little while beforehand, the people are excited to be around him. They're wanting to, to get close to Saul. They're wanting to get close to the king so they can become a part of his entourage, a part of his royal court, and all of the benefits and rewards that come from that. So there's so many people crowding around Saul that he takes 3,000 men and he sends everybody else home. 2,000 he keeps for himself as his personal bodyguard, his personal entourage, his court. And 1,000 he gives to his son, Jonathan. Jonathan immediately turns around with those 1,000 men and he goes and he attacks a Philistine garrison in a town called Geba. Now, this attack is really important for a lot of different reasons. The first is that back in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, God himself had actually enacted and put in place a peace treaty between Israel and the Philistines. And God himself maintained that peace treaty from that point on up until Jonathan decided to break it. So he broke this peace treaty that God himself had put into place. And not only did he break this peace treaty, it was an unprovoked attack. Since they were in a time of peace, there was no warning, there was no declaration of war, there was no common courtesy of allowing the Philistines time to arm and defend themselves. Almost like it was a cowardly attack that was done in the dead of night. And then to top it all off, Jonathan and Saul didn't even consult with God to see if it was a good idea to attack the Philistines or not. There was no seeking after him to see if it was a good decision, to see if it was a wise decision to attack the Philistines. Jonathan just did it. And because he does this thing, because he makes this unwise decision, this cowardly attack that's unprovoked, that breaks this peace, they're humiliated in front of the Philistines. This is not a, a time for victory and for cheering and being happy and celebrating the victory that Jonathan did. No. 
The Philistines considered Israel shameful in their conduct. And so Israel became a stench to the Philistines. So this shame and this humiliation that was brought upon by this attack, it leaves them in a bad place. So if you're taking notes from the this week sheet in the seat back in front of you, when God's people reject him as king, the king that they choose, they will make unwise decisions that lead to the humiliation of God's people. So continuing on in 1 Samuel 13, in verse 5. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth And when the people saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. So the Philistines, they are beyond mad. They are beyond upset, and they are way past the point of using diplomacy And so they muster and gather this gigantic army. Not only do you have 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, but you have as many troops that you can't even count them. They're armed and they're ready to teach these Israelites really how to fight a battle. Understandably, the people are scared because they see the situation that they're in. And so they hide themselves all over the countryside. They hide in caves. They hide in holes in the ground. Some of them even hide in tombs. Some of them even jump inside of wells and cisterns. Some people, they don't even want to be close to the fighting. And so they actually flee the country. They cross the Jordan, and they're out. They, they don't want to mess with it. But some people, they decide that they'll join with Saul, that they'll meet Saul at Gilgal, where he's still at, because he's the king Right? He should be able to inspire them, instill confidence in them so that they can stand, so that they can defend themselves against this massive army of the Philistines. But when the people get there, they, really, they realize rather quickly that Saul isn't able to encourage them. Saul isn't able to inspire them to courage and heroics. Because Saul's the reason they're in this situation in the first place. So all the people were following him, trembling. But because he had got them into the situation, he wasn't able to encourage them in this time of fear. So let's continue on in verse 8. He, being Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Now we need to back up for a moment because in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul, as prophet of God and judge in Israel, 
or Samuel as judge and prophet is talking to Saul the king and he says, anytime we're going to get together, anytime there's going to be a national assembly, anytime there's a national crisis, we're going to meet at Gilgal. And when we meet in Gilgal, you're going to wait for me. You're going to wait seven days, and then after that time, I'm going to come, I'm going to offer sacrifices on your behalf and on the people's behalf, and I'm going to advise you on what God would have you to do. So at first, this is exactly what Saul's doing. He's waiting, he's being patient, he knows, all right, Samuel's supposed to be here in seven days, so seven days, I'm going to wait. But after the seventh day was up and Samuel was seemingly nowhere to be found, the people panic. And they flee from Saul. They start scattering away from him because they have almost completely lost confidence in the king that they have chosen. And then Saul starts to panic. And as he panics, without Samuel there, he says, okay, fine. If Samuel's not going to come here and do his job like he promised he would, I will go ahead and I will offer the sacrifices. I will be a good religious king and I will do this. But what he does, he does illegally. And he does it out of fear because he was afraid of losing the people's support and the people's confidence. Because of this, he does what is not lawful for him as king to do. He is a king that's pretending to be a priest. So if you're taking notes, when God's people, when they reject him as king, the king that they choose will be fearful of losing their support. And they will take God's law into his own hands. So in verse 11, Samuel said, What have you done? And immediately Saul does what every single one of us probably would have done in that situation. He starts making his excuses and giving his reasons. Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not yet sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Immediately, Saul knows he's in trouble, and he offers his excuses. He says, The people, they they were scattering away from me, they were fleeing, they were running for their lives. And, and the Philistines, they were ready to attack me. And if they were going to attack me as the king of Israel, they were also going to attack me as the father of the man who carried out the attack on the Philistines. But it really, Saul really kicks it up a notch when he also blames Samuel for his actions. 
He says, Samuel, if you were here, if you had just been here like you promised that you were going to be, then I wouldn't have had to offer the sacrifice. You weren't here, and because you were a no-show, I actually, ugh, it pained me, but I had, to, I had to force myself to offer this sacrifice. I didn't want to do it, Samuel, but I, I had to do it because you weren't here. He hides his sin under this false sense of a religious act. I had to force myself to do this. He blames everybody else except himself for what he did. And he's not repentant. He's not transparent. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. If you're taking notes, when God's people reject him as king, instead of being transparent, the king that they choose will shift blame and they hide their sin under religious acts. Samuel continues and he informs Saul that because of his disobedience, because of his foolishness in offering this sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to, Saul's kingdom is not going to last that much longer. And it's not going to his son, Jonathan. No. No, Samuel tells Saul that it's going to be a man after his own heart that God himself is commanding to be a prince over his people. Now, there's something we need to talk about when, we, when we're looking at Saul as king over Israel. We tend to make Saul out to be some sort of wicked supervillain of sorts, who's only concerned with his power and his position and his prestige over the people of Israel. And to an extent, this is true. He's very much concerned about these things. He does tend to have a lack of concern of the things of God. But what we do when we villainize Saul in this way is we make ourselves to be better than him. We think that we are somehow morally superior to Saul. But we forget that we too are the villains. Because let's not forget that it's the people of God who actually reject him as king. And they ask for a man like them to be put as king over them so that they could be respectable like the people around them. Now before, I mean, you might not think, well, that might not be me. If, if I was in Saul's position, I would never have done that sort of stuff. I wouldn't have offered those sacrifices when I wasn't supposed to. I would have been more patient waiting for Samuel. You know, if Samuel would have said, wait seven days, I would have waited eight. You know, I would have been, I would have been on top of it. Right? That's what we tend to think. But have we ever done something or made a decision that has brought shame and humiliation, not just on ourselves, but on God's people? Have we ever thought that we are above God's law and then we just completely disregard those commands that He's given to us? Have we ever been more fearful and afraid of what other people might think about us instead of what God has actually said about us? Or have you ever shifted the blame for your sin onto others? I mean, quite a few of us have kids. And it's easy to say, 
Well, if those, if they, oh my goodness, if they wouldn't have destroyed their room, then I wouldn't have gotten mad at them and yelled at them. Or how many of you have ever had your boss give you a bad performance review at work? And then you feel like, well, if he wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have felt like I needed to start gossiping and slandering about him. We tend to shift that blame onto others for our own sinfulness and mistakes. And what we see with Saul in this passage and in all of his, the rest of his kingship is that Saul is really a perfect picture of the people of God because they are exactly like him in their rejection of God and in how they handle the law, how they handle their sin, and how they bring humiliation and shame upon themselves. Saul, as king, all he did in this chapter was lead the people to shame, humiliation, national disgrace. When we make ourselves king over our own lives, we continually and constantly subject ourselves to sin and shame and humiliation. What we need and what Israel needed desperately is a better king. So let's, let's begin to land today by looking um, really quickly at two verses from the New Testament. So in Revelation 1, verses 5 and 6, we get a picture of this better, perfect king. So Revelation 1, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Christ unequivocally is that better king. In Christ, as that better king, he undoes everything that we do when we reject God as our king. Christ, the better king, he frees us from our sin and he frees us from our shame. And Christ teaches us and allows us to walk in freedom and transparency. Christ, the better king, he shows us the beauty of God's law. Just like Jason had talked about last week, when Christ or when God forgives us for breaking his law by holding us accountable to it, he shows us its beauty, he shows us its goodness, he shows us its perfection and value. And when, we've been, when we have been freed from that shame and that sin, then we can finally see that the law is good for us and Christ makes it beautiful for us. And Christ, the better king, he takes our identities and he transforms them and he roots them in him. And he frees us from the fear of what other people think of us. Because he takes us when we are lost, when we are scattered, when we are in rebellion against him and rejecting his rule over our lives. He takes us, he gathers us together in his love. He forgives us of our sin and our law breaking. And he makes us into members of his kingdom 
And as members of his kingdom, the only reason we are members is because of what he has done for us. And so our identity becomes rooted in what Christ has done and his work on our behalf. And when we have that identity as ours, then we're freed from the need to be afraid of what other people think about us. So as the worship team and the prayer partners come up, I have a few questions that I'd like us to reflect on today. In what ways has the fear of what others thought of you impacted how you see God's law? What ways do you hide your sin or shift blame onto others for your sin? And how has the freedom that Christ offers from sin and shame allowed you to walk in freedom and transparency? Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you for your word and your goodness towards us. We thank you that you have shown us uh, through Saul that we are much more, um, much more villainous than we tend to want to admit. And Lord, we need you as the better king to be king over us as your people. God, as we continue on in this service, help us to be mindful of your goodness and your grace towards us and help us to be ever aware of our need and our dependency upon you as our better king to free us from all that we do when we reject you and sin against you. God, draw us closer to yourself, draw us deeper into faith and closer to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.